As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hail and well-met, Traveler. Welcome to the Tavern. Did you know this is the place where more than half of the greatest adventures in history have begun? But before those adventurers took their first steps, they watched and calculated who would join their party. Why look over there? There's a mighty barbarian from the Frozen Lands. Strong, mighty, full of honor and wisdom. I happen to know that one. They go by Matt Rossi. And look over there to the right. That woman working away on her mechanical dog. She's cunning, witty, and I've seen her bounce more than her fair share of ne'er-do-wells out of here before I can even blink. I happen to know that she goes by the name Liz Harper. And me? Oh, my name's Joe Perez. And I'll be your tavern keeper. Welcome to Tavern Watch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tavern Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about, well, tabletop games, because 
they're great and we love them. Uh, I am one of your fantastic hosts, uh, Joe Perez. Uh, with me today is Matt Rossi, as always, and Liz Harper. Uh, but we have a special guest today, which I'm sure is why you're all tuning in, because it can't be for us. Uh, so we have Brendan Conway from Magpie Games. And that name might sound familiar to you if you are a fan of, well, masks, or more importantly and recently, the Avatar Legends tabletop role-playing game that's on Kickstarter and is absolutely crushing it. Brendan, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Like, I mean, who are you? Like, besides, you know, a guy that makes really awesome games. I hail from a planet you might know as Krypton. Uh, <laughs> I mean, come on. I felt like I had to, that was a setup. And, all right. Sorry. Um, well, I, uh, I've been working actually with uh, Magpie pretty much full time for, uh, I guess, approximately five years now. And not entirely full-time before that uh, for several years. So it feels like part of that question is just so much of what I do on a daily basis and in a professional capacity is oriented entirely towards Magpie Games and the work we do there. Uh, I'm a co-owner of Magpie Games. I'm the lead designer on Avatar Legends, the RPG, as you just said, and I designed and wrote Masks. I'm one of the co-designers for Zombie World, uh, co-designer for uh, Root, the role-playing game. Um, and beyond that, uh, Partially for the work, I, I moved to Albuquerque, so now I'm living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but I'm from uh, New Jersey originally and lived there my whole life, so I will always be a New Jerseyan at heart in my <laughs> dirty, polluted, cancerous heart. Um, and I'm I'm a, a fountain pen addict. That, oh. That's, that's <laughs> my particular sickness. You know what? That is uh, that is really nice to hear because uh, my my wife has recently become uh, addicted to the fountain pens as well, and so they're all over the house, including one that she just got me, which is shaped like a shark. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great little comic I shared with my wife that was like, "Oh, fountain pen! I bought one because you can replace the ink in it." And then the other person says, "Oh, great! So you only bought one, right?" Blank look. <laughs> you only bought one, right? <laughs> It's kind of like dice. You really only need one set, right? I mean, why would you have more than one set of dice? Madness. There's no reason at all. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess speaking about speaking about dice, how did you get started in, in tabletop in general? So my first game ever was when I was really young. Uh, some combination of uh, I had asked questions about the D&D box set that my dad got and brought home because it was one of those sets. I don't know what they're called. I don't think they were ever one of the legendary sets, but uh, it had a board game in it. So we would play the board game, but there was this whole other set of information, additional statistics and stuff you could do. And I kept asking about it. So one day he dropped me off at the local comic book game store where I joined in a D&D game with 12 players and uh, an angry old man running it. And that's how I learned RPGs. Uh, wow! In, in in the Crucible, I was gonna um, say, like, did, did did you steal that from Central Casting? I feel like that's what half of us do. Yeah, <laughs> My God, yeah, it's, like, it's yep. the same angry old man, isn't it? It's actually some avatar of Odin who runs around rolling. You know, there you go, children. Soon, you know, I don't have my vengeance. I would buy it. I would yeah. buy it. I I truly believe there was a component of that game of like, how can I stick it to them this time? Um, but <laughs> past that. When when I was uh, after graduating college, 
uh, I was still playing plenty of games and getting more and more into indie games. And I was posting a couple things on the now defunct Google plus, uh, and oh, that, yes. that wound up connecting me, uh, with Marcus Truman, who in turn, due to a number of things, uh, I, I wound up working with him on, uh, Firefly, the role-playing game. And I also, uh, created last days of Anglicate, which was the first real property I had created myself and the first full book I wrote myself. Uh, and then Magpie published that. So that's really how I started doing any of this at all in any kind of professional capacity. Wow, that's uh, pretty, uh, not what I expected, but awesome. <laughs> um, so I know Matt's probably going to want to ask about masks here, and I think that's probably a good place to segue into. So Matt, anything you want to go, and that would be the time. Well, I mean, one of the things I wanted to do was kind of draw a line here, because that masks is very interesting in that you didn't just make a superhero game. You made a very specific superhero game. It's it's very much a young hero's coming-of-age type of, of role-playing experience. And because of the way you have the, the party come together to make the group together, um, it, it definitely sort of has that very... Uh, I, I don't even know... There's been a lot of media like this over the years. If you go back to the 80s, like the New Teen Titans and the Claremont X-Men kind of had that feel. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you go more recently, like Young Justice or Wolverine and the X-Men... Um, there's been shows like Runaways, which was, of course, based on the comic Runaways, which has that feel, too. Mm-hmm. Like, when you started designing, was that the goal? Were you going with that as your your design element? Or did you start off with us just, I want to do a superhero game and then key in on it later? Yeah, so Masks started with one single kernel that then grew as I realized the other things that were necessary that sort of tagged on in order to fulfill the original promise I was after, uh, along with making additional decisions that further refined it. That kernel was an image, uh, gosh, I forget which series it was right now, but it was the image of the younger, time-lost Cyclops kissing X-23, the young woman clone of Wolverine. Oh, I I sadly know exactly what that's from. That's from the... uh... The Bendis run on young the Young X Men yes. comic. Yeah, I remember yes. it. Yep. Yeah. And, well, and and I looked at it. And it's such a great little image, and and there's so much nonsense and drama wrapped up in that picture. Looking at it, and I'm immediately saying, "Oh, but like old Cyclops and Wolverine hate each other." But these ah, there's so much there um, that I think had been shared out on Google Plus is when I saw it, and John Stavropoulos, who had shared it out, had said uh, somebody should make mutant hearts. So the picture set my heart aflame. I liked that idea. I started looking into what I would do to create a game that could do that, uh, starting with Monster Hearts as a basis. Um, and then, of course, realizing as I was aiming for that, that target is really, really specific. So sort of expanding it to, okay, well, they're both young. There's a reason that helps. We get a lot of additional benefits by focusing on young superheroes. Here are some of the other comics and stories that I really like. Let's see if they can be brought into that target as well. Here are the changes I'm beginning to realize uh, I need to make at some level to Monster Hearts or fundamental premises that are different or just things that need to completely and utterly change in order to fulfill the thing I'm going for. Uh, So that's kind of how it all began this desire to capture that image, but then that grew to let me hit Young Avengers because I love Young Avengers. Let me hit Young Justice because I love Young Justice. Let me let me bring in all these different things that I've never, before that moment, like I had not played a game that I felt could do those things the way I wanted them to be done. Yeah, because one of the things I really loved about 
when I the first time I got to play Mask, I had been completely against playing it because I I am <laughs> I was very nervous. I was very nervous about about Powered by the Apocalypse games. Sure, yeah. Uh, I had only seen like you know like Apocalypse World and mm-hmm. Monster of the Week, and I played Monsters of the Week and liked and liked it fine, but I I felt nervous about playing in it. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to the part where we made our characters together, um, I remember the first person had essentially created Batman's sidekick. Like he, he was made a Robin. The next person made a character specifically to annoy that character. And I ended up after everyone was making characters, I ended up with the, the scion, the, nice. the, the super villain kid. And my mom was this big deal, super villain who controlled like rock and earth and had fought their, the settings version of Superman a few times. And that was my mom. And Love it. I went to, we, we all ended up at a party together and I was wearing her, one of her, the stolen costumes from the wonder woman analog. My mother had stolen it and I didn't know what it was. So I wore it as my costume and that character ended up showing up during the party. Like, cause a monster got summoned for another dimension by one of the other players who secretly had a monster. <laughs> you know, like, like you do, yeah, like, like you, you do. <laughs> and I just was hooked on this, like the way it, like everyone's decisions. It was, a, it was so strongly. Yes. And, where everybody was like, would just come up with something and everybody would jump on it and go, oh mm-hmm. yeah, this is absolutely, I'm working this into my origin. That's where I got my powers from that monster you summoned. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, I was like, oh, this is the best superhero role-playing game I've ever seen. Yeah, I, and awesome. I've played, like I, like I said, I've played Mutants of Mastermind, i played Champions, played all of them. And I, I mean, I have a soft spot for all of them. But what I really loved was because you focused it, as you said, uh, because you you had that initial idea, and then you tr- you expanded it to like allow in things that would make that idea possible. You kind of brought in like the real core of like even car- comics going back to like Spider Man mm-hmm. with like Peter Parker, the hard luck case, and you know nothing ever goes right for him, and how he's always got romantic difficulties. Mm-hmm. It felt like that all that was there, and mm-hmm. it was there in the the rules. So I want to talk about influence and how you basically gave the party the ability to affect each other, not steal from each other, not steal like um, agency, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but, but develop the plot. I'd like to talk about that. If you don't mind, like how did you guys come up with that? Like, how did you like, is that from monster hearts originally? Cause I've, I've not played monster hearts. I'm sorry. Yeah. So um, I mean, there is that component of looking at what monster hearts did, figuring out what worked. And if it didn't work, it works in Monster Hearts. It's just a question of why doesn't it work for what I was after? What what was missing to hit the target I was trying to hit? So Monster Hearts has strings, which makes sense. You're these little monsters. You're getting strings, emotional strings that you can pull over the other characters, manipulating and poking and uh, causing kinds of trouble to go. But in Masks, that wasn't exactly what I wanted. That I didn't want as adversarial a kind of relationship. And the other piece of it that I really, really did want actually uh, was the NPCs towards the PC relationship. Yeah, Um, like like the Scion has that where you actually have to pick out NPCs that you particularly want their respect. Exactly, yes. Yeah, there was a thing that was going on as I was writing it where, you know, I I think this is a classic game design thing where you you have your target and even if your target is, I'm going to make a Battlestar Galactica role-playing game. As you work on it more and more, there comes a point at which you start pouring yourself into it. And it becomes like, unless it's the purest, most 
utterly licensed version of that, right? It'll start shaping into something because you're adding to it. You're bringing your experiences, how you see things into it, and you're you're pouring your heart into it. So here for me, there was a fair amount of me pouring a sense I had had because I was uh, 20s at the time and I was still trying to resolve some of my, like coming out of college where um, I had felt for a long time in my life, I was like on a on a railroad track and I was just doing... Uh, the next thing according to the track, because that's what other people had laid out in front of me, and that's just what I was supposed to do. Uh, and this sense of others in my life, especially the adults, being able to tell me what I should be doing, what's next, who I was, and trying to figure out how I could actually find myself or find a space amid those choices or agree with those choices and have it actually be positive for my growth. So... That's where a lot of the NPC influence stuff came from. The NPCs absolutely had to have a way to have that effect on the player characters, to tell them, this is who you are, this is who you should be, this is what you should do, that kind of thing that should then also have a real effect on the actual character sheet, um, which plays into how labels can shift up and down and that changes your stats. All of that was my desire to have this feedback loop where... At some level, you are this lump of clay. You've already had a story, but you can become so many different things. And we're just watching what you become as others come at you, trying to shape you and bend that clay into all manner of different things until at some point you've made enough choices that you are shaping yourself and deciding on who you are. So that's where the influence came from uh, heavily was a desire to just say, this mechanic solves how NPCs can be able to affect you in that way. And there were tons of iterations from, should influence be a number? Should I be able to hold two or three or four influence? No, that didn't really work out. Let's just do it as a binary. And the the real thing that made it click was the realization that, oh, okay, so within the team, influence can be a thing that comes and goes, and I can say whether or not you have it over me, but every adult has it over you. Every adult should be able to hit you in this way to affect you and it is actually a notable moment that you can achieve to be able to say wow i have learned that you are a bad influence and i no longer care what you have to say to me cool all right uh one last thing then uh because otherwise this will become an entire show about mask <laughs> um but one of the things i really liked about mask as well is the concept of borrowing moves from other playbooks um because you have the, the very mm-hmm, the basic mm-hmm. playbooks like you know the uh the, the scion the, the the nomad the the bowl the nova mm-hmm. um and because you can borrow from other playbooks you can kind of customize your character mm-hmm. and develop them along certain ways which is mechanically it's really cool but it's also kind of cool because it it sort of plays back into that concept of influence because if you're in a party with people i, I remember mine like i borrowed a move from the i can't remember the name of the one that is effectively the child of a superhero the legacy um, the legacy yeah i since i was playing the scion i was like the exact opposite i was but I borrowed mm-hmm. a move from the legacy because we were hanging out all the time and complaining about our parents. Right. So mm-hmm. it felt like we were getting closer. And so that's one of the things that we did. I, I borrowed a, like an, a move from her book and she gave me influence over her. And like w- w- when you, is that, again, I don't know if that's imported from other uh, like monster hearts or some other PBTA. Uh, it wasn't in monster of the week. I don't remember, but it might've been because I, I only played that a few times. Mm-hmm. But like w- when you did that, were you doing that consciously to like reinforce that concept of connections between people and influence over people? Because one of the things that I've really noticed is that you talked about 
like how every adult can have influence over you, but influence doesn't have to be positive. Yeah, absolutely. Like they, they, you can you can be rebelling against it, like in the case of yep. with the sign with the evil parent, or in the legacy with the you know the superhero who's like it's like if your mom is Wonder Woman, sometimes that might be a bit much, mm-hmm. and so. I, I wanted to ask you about that, about the about the mechanics versus the the effect in the game. Yeah, the the practice of letting you take moves from another playbook to some limited extent goes all the way back to Apocalypse World um, by Vincent and Megway Baker, mm-hmm. um, and it it was always sort of there to be um, a you can't do it a ton, but you can always splash in other stuff and get that one thing that's going to sync really well with what you're doing. Uh, But yeah, for masks, it does take on a whole other meaning because uh, uh, Apocalypse World still has the idea of niche protection, right? That you're only going to have one of each playbook. Uh, So you're only going to have the Battle Babe, the Gunlugger, the way that in masks you're going to have the Legacy, the Protégé. But in masks, there's that sense of I can go and dip in playbooks that aren't here and that's fine. I can just add to myself and get some of those abilities because they're fun and they're cool and I just like them and I want to add them. But if I take one from your playbook, it feels like it is really connecting us saying something like the moment you're describing sounds absolutely awesome. Like learning from the legacy to take a move and having that connection be then represented by this new ability you have. That sounds incredibly cool and exactly what i would want from people taking moves from other playbooks uh that are in play i I think always that's one of those tensions right you don't want one hero to start feeling like i'm not cool anymore because they took all my cool stuff yeah yeah, Um, yeah exactly so so there's a tension there of wanting to have the ability to take from the playbooks especially because at the at this point in time we have 20 total playbooks Mm -hmm. which means Obviously, most of them are not in play. Um, so you should be able to go and root through the other ones to find a move that you like if there's something you really want to do or something that's supported that's just not currently present for you. I now want um, to run a game where I get 20 people to do all the DM playbooks. <laughs> this is the event comic of this game. Hard mode, yeah. I like it. But no, okay. That's yeah. That's I, at this point, I really think we should move on though, because I I could seriously sit here and just ask you more and more questions about this game. I think it's an amazing. But I did want to segue because one of the things that Masks does that I think Avatar, from what I've read of the Quick Start, mm-hmm. Avatar Legends seems to do this pretty well too. Is build up that concept of you're young, you're starting out, you're trying to make you know not just your mark in the world, but you also want to make a better world. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of the games have that kind of going on. Was that in your head when you started working on Avatar? Yes, but they they exist in two different styles and modes just based on the stories that you're telling. Mm-hmm. We we all understand at some level when we're in superhero fiction and like really deep superhero fiction, it's never going to end. We we can defeat Thanos, but that just means Kang's around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's no thing we can do that solves the world. That's true in the setting of Avatar The Last Airbender as well, right? We defeat Fire Lord Ozai, but that doesn't mean later on we don't get Amon and we don't get Unalak and Zaheer and all of the other villains of Korra. Um, but also there's a, a meaningful feeling difference between the two in that one of them really is like, this world is so endlessly changing and dinosaurs are here one day and there's a wizard here the next day and aliens the next day. And it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes endlessly forever 
versus the other one of like, no, if we stop this guy, we make a difference. At the end of this season of our TV show, the world will now look truly different because we saved things. Mm-hmm. We stopped something really dangerous. We affected it. And those changes will carry forward. Um, Korra does this a, a ton because at the end of season one of Korra, we change the way that the entire Republic City is governed. At the mm-hmm. end of season two of Korra, the spirit portals are left open, leading to the return of airbenders. The world changes. So it was crucial for uh, the game to then capture that sense of, I'm a character who, you know, I'm not just a hero in a little bit of the mask sense where, like, I do good. I'm a, I do good things. I'm a good guy. I'm going to fight the villains. I'm going to protect people. But it's also I'm a hero in the sense of those big epic level changes. I would like to pursue those. Yes, please. I can have a goal that says I would like to fight poverty or I would like to depose the dark and corrupt leader of our country uh, in a way that, again, not that you couldn't ever do it in masks, but just the default comic book stuff is you depose Dr. Doom and yeah, comics whatever. Yes. Yeah, status quo is king in comics. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Whereas as you pointed out, like just between series, you go from avatar at the end, fire Lord Ozai is defeated. You go to the beginning of Korra and they've got a completely different governmental setup over part of the yeah. world. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's yep. very much so. All right. At this point though, I'm going to shut up so other people can ask questions. <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of how Avatar the was was built and how you've come up with it. Uh, like the big, obviously, kind of one of the core things in any role playing game is the stati- the stats you have. And uh, Avatar has some interesting ones. It's broken down into focus, harmony, passion, and creativity. And I wanted to know how did you come up with this list? How did you break down characters in the Avatar world into just Four core characteristics. <laughs> so uh, obviously our starting point, beginning with Powered by the Apocalypse stuff, th- there's always this um, component to it where we, we like to think of Powered by the Apocalypse more as a framework mm-hmm. than a system. Th- there's no like one piece of it where that's the reason it is this thing. Can you make a Powered by the Apocalypse game in which you don't roll two six-sided dice? Yeah. Can you make one without playbooks? Yeah. So here, of course, the default is it's a tool we know works. It has worked countless times. Let's start with the tool, see if it's working. If we need to, we'll change it. The tool is stats. Um, Stats work in Apocalypse World itself. Uh, Obviously, they needed changing in masks because they're labels and they shift back and forth to achieve a different purpose. But there are stats in root. Um, So here, you know, we started with the concept Let's have stats. Let's see if stats are working. And then in turn, let's see what we can actually communicate about the characters or say about the characters through the stats. Always the stats are tied to the basic moves of the game, uh, where the the stat that gives you a bonus on these two basic moves tells us a lot about that character. If that's a high stat, can we successfully like name the stat to communicate that sentiment to bring it all together? So that's the process by which we're trying to figure out what the names of the stats should be in nearly any of the games we do. These particular four names, like obviously we had these meetings in which we're like, well, could it be fire, earth, air, and water? Not sure that's going to work. Um, we went back and forth, but it had a lot to do with contributions from uh, the whole team, right? Like it's myself, but it's also Mark Diaz Truman, and it's also Marissa Kelly. It's also James Mendez Hodes bringing in some 
brilliant ideas that are contributing designers like uh, Sharon Biswas or Senfun Lim or Daniel Kwan or uh, Cleo Davis. Like everybody was bringing good feedback that let us sort of hone that list. Maybe we get one word in and then we get another word in and we lock it in. And we're like, when you make a character with a high harmony, and that's all I tell you about the character, do you have a sense of what that character is now good at? Do you have a sense of who that character is just knowing they have a high harmony? That's when we know they start to work. So when we can say, oh, Korra has a high passion. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. Okay, cool. I was actually going to wonder if you were going to say Korra has a high harmony. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> like, we designed the playbooks with some of those uh, epic major characters in mind. And so Korra, Korra for me, at least a certain mode of Korra, especially season one Korra, is the hammer. And the, oh, hammer, yeah. Yeah. the hammer is not a harmony playbook. No. <laughs> Uh, so speaking of just going back a little bit with the the whole creation of the project, were you afraid of what response was going to be with doing a game for Avatar? Like to say that the response has been absolutely like, I think positive is, is it may be an understatement. I mean, right now, as we're, we're live here recording this, I think the Kickstarter sitting at like 7.44 million. Did you expect that there was going to be that strong of a response to it? Were you nervous about putting something out there with the Avatar uh, IP on it? Um, how was the, the sort of like, how did you, how did you get to the point where you felt comfortable enough to just kind of just go for it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. The, the enormous amount of success, um, that has been a, just a, a gift from our incredible backers. And like, we're incredibly grateful for that, for that degree of faith they put in us. We did not expect this exactly. Right. Like we, we expected that it would be successful. We hoped it would be successful. Um, that's why at some level we thought it was worth doing in the first place. Um, but also we were always doing it because we love the property and we were just so grateful to get a chance to play inside of this space and figure things out and, and maybe contribute something meaningful to other people being able to create their own avatar stories. So I say that because that became one of the big shifts psychologically early on. The massive success that, again, we're, we're just so incredibly grateful for is something I personally have sort of kept outside of the door uh, and kept the door closed because I still need to do the thing. I still need to mm-hmm. design the game, play test the game, refine the mechanics, take in other people's play test notes. The, the fact that it is successful at some level makes me anxious because so many more people are going to view it than anything I have ever done before. But also... I'm still putting in the same amount of effort and focus and attention that I put in on all of our games. Like every single game we always pour our hearts into and we really want them to be the best possible thing it can be. Um, And so this one is just doing that for a much larger audience, but I'm still doing that work, refining it, focusing it as best I possibly can. And so the whole time that has been our overall company strategy is like, Let's do the best we possibly can. We really hope it's successful. We think it's going to be this successful, and it turned out to be even more so, which is just amazing. But still, it doesn't necessarily affect our desire to just do the best. If it was less successful, that would be scary. And, I mean, it is scary. Before you push go, maybe it isn't going to be successful. I'm always a little bit of the the downer and the pessimist, and I'm like, I want to make sure we have a plan in case 
everything goes awry. Can we can we talk about that? Where I'm bringing up nightmare hypotheticals, um, but also in all of those cases, we're just going to try to do the absolute best we can in all instances. So the fact that it is so extraordinarily successful, obviously we want to honor everything. Uh, we want to honor all of the backers. Um, we want to put the best book we can into their hands, but we would have done that for 5,000 backers or 10,000 backers. The fact that it's 60,000 is incredible. And also it means I want to give them the exact same amazing, incredible book. Before Liz asks a question, cause I know she's got one. I just want to say uh, from just a personal standpoint, this project actually made me break my personal. I don't back Kickstarter like projects. I, I'm, I'm so sorry, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but it, it's the pedigree of everything that you had put out beforehand and particularly in particular, like masks and, and watching the approach and, and how you developed that and, and what would the end product was made me feel more confident in what you guys were going to produce regardless of how big it got. And Thanks, yeah. So like it, I, I couldn't wait to just throw like my support behind it. And I think I, I'm going to let Liz ask her question because I think it's pertinent here. Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask about playtesting. I know y'all have been playtesting for a while. There's been the quick start guide out for a while, which I've read through. And I mean, anyone could go and just play a starter campaign based on that. Mm -hmm. How has the game evolved since you started playtesting to what it is now? <laughs> well, the, the compared to its most uh, nascent form, compared to the very first thing, it's it's pretty massively different. Um, we maybe nailed a few of the basic moves, but several of them have undergone revisions or still undergoing revisions. Um, by which I mean revision, there's this thing where we have learned the most focused of word choices can have an effect on the way the move is perceived, the thing it gets someone to envision when they use it. Uh, so that precision of language is one of those things we really, really pay attention to, are literally the two words that are the title of this move. Are they sending the message we want? Can we swap one of them out to better get at the message we actually want to better create the play we want? So like all of those moves have undergone some degree of revision, be it that sort of wordsmithing or an entire major change. The uh, fight system, the combat system has gone through significant changes to refine it, to take in the feedback, to make it more active, more functional. Um, and there's this corollary to all of that, which of course plays into the other side of making this entire system work. Um, a lot of the playtesting teaches all of us, me especially, what I need to better explain. Where a lot of the times the, the issue is somebody says, I did this thing and it didn't work. And I'm saying to myself, I don't know why you did it that way. And the realization is, oh, because it's not explained well enough because I didn't prime you well enough. Because the thing itself, the idea that, you know, I wanted to add in that moment is still there, but it's not accessible to the player or the GM. And so we need to go back and change it and refine it and make sure that clarity comes through. Uh, just as much as that it is functional. Um, so across the board, there have been these times when somebody will have a brilliant idea, but it's not enough to just have that idea and have it be present. We also then have to support it by explaining it. And the playtesting teaches us what we need to explain, how we need to explain it, what we need to draw out further, even if it doesn't directly look like a change to the system. 
the effect of giving you a book that teaches you that system very, very well is just as important as the system itself working very, very well. So selfishly, I'm making notes about that because I'm working on a project in the background that I think this is going to be very relevant for. Um, but that's that's really interesting to hear, too, that the, there's sort of like this this evolution, not necessarily just of mechanics, but specifically the the verbiage and making the, the points clearer uh, yep. for people for consumption, because I think that's something that a lot of people who maybe just play uh, tabletop games or maybe haven't really run anything before don't realize how important that can actually be. Um, and a lot of times, <laughs> like you have like a game runner or storyteller or whatever you want to call them um, acting as sort of that in-between piece. But I like the approach of like making sure everything's well-defined and explained for all the players. So that it doesn't necessarily have to have that translation point. It's almost like you're eliminating a point of failure, right? Like it, I, I like that idea. That's I think that's a really good concept. Yeah. Um, Mark Diaz Truman has used the, the term. Uh, and I think this is exactly right. And what we shoot for um, when you get to the table, you want people to be able to speak with confidence. Because there's that thing where sometimes when you play a game and you're not quite sure and the rules are messy and you're flipping through the pages to try to find exactly the right rule, mm -hmm. uh, but you can't find it. There's that doubt. There's that I'm not sure what to say right now or I'm not sure what the right thing to do is or I guess I'll come up with something so we can keep the game moving. But I'm just I'm not sure that what I come up with is correct, quote unquote. And it almost like pulls people out of that moment, right? Like, because they're spending so much exactly. time sitting down, pouring through tomes of books. Like, I remember being that kid who, you know, first getting introduced at the game store to, you know, D&D &D at the time. And, like, having to have 8,000 books to find exactly what I wanted to do. And it making me not want to be vocal because, you know, mm -hmm. I wasn't confident. Like, I think that is a really great statement. Uh, so please tell Mark, you know, that I, I absolutely think that's a wonderfully accurate statement. Uh, mm -hmm. but like it, it, I don't think people realize how, how important that is to have players have that confidence and to have a game that, yeah. that allows players to be that confident. So kudos on that. Seriously. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that that's one of those, uh, learning process things. How do we build that confidence? But the realization that that's, that's the goal. I mean, it, going back to masks for just a second, it's that, it's Yay. that thing of, of realizing like. When I t give you your character and you make your character and you're like, I have the power to control frogs. I just want you to be able to speak with confidence about that power. I don't ever want you to be like, well, can I, but can I do this thing? Or what about toads? Can I control toads? Can I yeah. Are, are toads frogs? I want it to be like, I don't know. Are toads frogs? And I'm just going to push it back on you. You answer the question or we can go to the dice because you'll rely on your powers. You'll unleash your powers and they'll answer the question for us. But in all cases, like, I never want somebody to be like, but can my power really do this thing? Or it, it, how does my power really work? I, I want to be able to uh, foster that sense in players of speaking with confidence about what they can do, what the rules are, and then build on that, reinforce those rules. So it's the same here and all throughout. We want players to be able to speak with confidence about the setting, about how they bend, about so many of the different pieces of the fiction before we even get to the mechanics. And then we also want you to be able to say, cool, this is how this thing works. Cool, if you're trapped in the earth and you're sinking, we have a way for you to speak confidently about what that should look like in the mechanics. So speaking of mechanics, I think uh, Liz has a question here about one specific mechanic. So Liz? Yeah, I wanted to ask about the balance system, which seems mm -hmm. 
pretty unique to me. Uh, and for everyone listening who hasn't had a chance to dig in, uh, there's a balance system where each playbook, I believe it's based on playbooks, has two different kind of ideals that define their character. And as you play, you can shift back and forth. And I mean, I was curious how this, where this idea comes from, because it seems very specific, this idea of character balance in the universe and how it works out in play. Are you always moving back and forth? Is it kind of stable or what? Yeah, great question. Yeah. Um, so obviously balance uh, is a big part of the avatar setting itself. Um, and it's a term that we keep referring to. It's how we describe a lot of the villains. We say the reason that they're villainous is because they're out of balance. Um, so it was yeah, always... Like Kuvira is a really bad Exactly, yeah. Because th there's that whole thing at the end of season four of Korra where uh, she talks to old Toph and Toph is telling her, you know, they had decent ideas. Basically, every villain you fought had decent ideas. They just took them too far. Um, and they were out of balance. So we always wanted that. We always wanted this notion of balance to be reflected. Having it be this push back and forth between the two principles was a thing that helped crystallize what a playbook in this game was. Across the board, we think of playbooks as like a character arc. Like uh, in Masks, you pick the protege. Your character arc is dealing with your mentor. Do you want to become your mentor? Do you want to be different from your mentor? Great. Uh, that character now has a trajectory, not an answer to the question, but a path. In Avatar, what we realized was we wanted these playbooks to be these open questions. Which thing will you choose when pushed and pulled between two poles? There are two answers that you're thinking about and you might go with either one it's a toss-up neither one is inherently correct they both have reasons you would go for them the reason you're playing this playbook is because you're interested in that question that push and pull between the two of them another playbook it's not to say they don't have an opinion on the things that are your principles but it is to say it's not their question. They very likely are resolved on that issue or they just don't care about it in the same way. It's not dividing them. So for me, it became a, a source of major dramatic tension, a way to look at that playbook and immediately get this is what it's about. Oh, OK, got it. I mean, we're, we're still in the middle of playtesting the rogue. So uh, everything I say here is possible to change. But for example, we're, we're looking at the rogue. The rogue is supposed to be kind of a Kai playbook. Um, and the rogue right now is sort of friendship versus survival. It's the notion that you are having a hard time squaring companionship, being a part of a group, being friends with people, supporting each other with being safe, surviving, getting through anything that can come your way okay, making it through no matter what. And you're trying to pick which of those is more important to you even though in any given situation, one of them might be more valuable in that moment, right? When you're entirely on your own and you're trapped in a prison, survival might be the thing you actually need over friendship right then and there. Um, so that's how it sort of came together was this sense that now we can say each of these playbooks is about this push and pull. Each of these playbooks has this longer arc to it that has to do with the decision between those. Mm -hmm. And so in answer to the question of how quickly they shift, they shift nowhere near as quickly as masks labels. Um, <laughs> they, they wound up being our long-term story thing, especially because um, in terms of combat, in terms of things an NPC can do to you, we now functionally have three resources. We have fatigue, conditions, and balance. 
Fatigue is something a villain can do to you right now. It's not intensely costly. It's immediate, though. It takes effect right away. Whatever consequences it has are instantaneous and real. Conditions are kind of middle term. When you start taking conditions, a little bit like in masks, they'll they'll affect you. They have some more consequence. But you can still get rid of them. It just might take a little longer or take some extra effort. But a balance shift, a balance shift can be a big deal, especially once we realized and unlocked that the key piece of the balance track, when your balance gets pushed off the end of the track, your center shifts, where your center is the default position you occupy. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Yes, right. That oh moment was the oh, yes, this is how this thing works. That balance is not just a back and forth, and that's the only thing that matters. Your center will change over time, and you'll skew towards one of the principles, but maybe you go, oh gosh, no, I want to push my center back the other way. I'm getting too close to the edge, because if your center pushes off the edge of the balance track, if you have a center of plus three, and it would go one more step, then that means it's time for that character to change playbooks, to retire. That story is over. That playbook has made its decision about those principles. Exactly. You walked into the Jedi Temple and killed a bunch of younglings. There's no way out now. Yeah, that, that's you're, the, you're no longer a Jedi. You're a Sith. Yeah, exactly. No, I, yeah, exactly. that's actually really interesting. I, I find that absolutely brilliant. Like, I think that it, that is a uh, that's one of the things I think a lot of people struggle with, in particular with a lot of the games that are out there for Power by the Apocalypse, is uh, a lot of the the storytelling in it. While it is a collective storytelling heavy type system, there's not a lot of of uh, playbooks that really deal with like personal agendas. Um, the sprawl is the one that comes to mind the most and probably because I have the most familiarity with it, um, where like a personal agenda is is front and foremost for pretty much every playbook because it's how you you sort of motivate your character to do the things that you're going to do, but also get your mm-hmm. level ups and everything else. Um, but it always felt a little short to me as far as like actual character development, whereas what you have here is you know, something that really is centered and focused on, like you said, answering that question that that character is asking about themselves and their place in the world. And I really like the idea of the, the idea of your center shifting, becoming the point of that, that answer to the question that is, I I mean, I'm not trying to like, just, you know, shower you with accolades, but that's absolutely brilliant. (laughs) And I think it's something that I think a lot of other games have just kind of fallen just ever so slightly short of uh, in their intention to hit something similar. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I think that within the team working on it, like coming up with that concept and how uh, that worked was for all of us. The oh, we see it now because now it fills. Now I get this... what's happened with Zuko. Exactly, <laughs> it, it fills this long term role. Yes, exactly, and and I mean the fact that you can see now in playtesting, it's borne out. You can have the player be like, you know what, I'm doing it. I'm going all the way. I'm the icon. My things are between role and freedom, so I'm trying to decide, do I want to occupy this role I was quote-unquote born to do, or do I want to be free and just get to live my life? This is kind of the Aang, the early Aang playbook, um, a little bit. Uh, And seeing a player actually make the choice and say, you know what, I'm going for it. I'm going to go freedom. I'm giving up. I'm giving up this role. I decided I'm not going to be this crucial thing i'm gonna be myself 
or get scared and be like, oh, no, I'm at plus three balance uh, and I'm at plus three center. OK, let me let me work this back. Can I can I just pull myself back? Maybe I should embrace my role a little bit more. Let me let's let's not dive off the edge quite yet. And that's fun. That's an interesting. You can see the character struggling with it the same way you see the player struggling with it. All right. There's something I wanted to ask that I isn't necessarily about this particular game, but it's about stuff in general. Um, it's not a secret that role-playing games as as a field are fairly dominated by one or two really big companies. Mm-hmm. And with what you've done here, you've come along and kind of given people an example that somebody else can do something and have it have the potential to be wildly embraced. Do you feel like this is in any way going to change the way the industry works going forward, or would you like it to? Interesting question. I, I think... Part of the tension there is always the honest appraisal. Like you call out the a couple of dominant games, and it's always just the, the actual appraisal. D and D is so massively dominant and successful in this space. If if Wizards of the Coast did do a Kickstarter, it's the kind of thing where you're like, they would make fifty billion dollars. They would sure, make just yeah. an, a, enough money to completely shadow everything that we did. Um, so that honest acknowledgement also keeps us a little humble. Um, but it is just the, the nature of this industry and the space with that one incredibly dominant example. That said, though, to take your point, like this image of it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't just have to be a D20 product. It doesn't have to be a D&D setting supplement. It can be a whole new thing. Um, yeah, I think what we would love is for that to be taken up, that there are other models that can be successful that can work that can connect with an audience um part of the hope would be these sixty thousand some odd backers are going to play this game and experience a whole new system for the first time and and if nothing else like i don't necessarily have an interest in having them come away being like i have burned my dungeons and dragons books no no, No no, more you're right exactly but But, i I want them to have other stuff yeah so I, like, that's exactly yes. So to that point, like one of the things I think you guys are doing absolutely uh, brilliant in this Kickstarter, which I've seen a lot of other ones not do, is that you have store bundles, right? Um, and mm-hmm. I'll give a shout out to one of my local stores here, Iron Buffalo, where, you know, before I had even talked to them, uh, they were already like, yep, okay, we already pushed the button. We've already slammed the finger on this one because they're in the same mental space, right? They want to show that there's other games out there besides D&D and there, there's a case for a lot of these other things, especially for something like this, where, you know, it's that story and that struggle that is uh, center, right? Like it's a game about that, whereas D&D can be about that, but it tends to skew more towards I cast fireball or magic missile into the darkness. Um and they're just completely separate focuses, but there's space for everything. And I think it's really cool that not only are you guys doing that and allowing the stores to kind of jump in on that, um, but like you're saying, you're hoping that the 60,000 backers are going to do it. I mean, I know damn well that I'm going to be running this game for people and trying to introduce them to, you know, more story centric things because I think it's important. Uh, but I, I think stores are starting to jump on this too because they see the same thing. They want people in their stores playing these things that are not necessarily just a D20 clone. Um, and I think it's really, really cool that you opened yourselves up for that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, a big piece, I think, is we believe that um, the game has a real effect on play and having 
a particular game and saying it can do anything is always a recipe to wind up running in headfirst into a wall of the mm-hmm, thing it mm-hmm. likely yeah. can't do. Um, there, and there's so, also, yeah, there's, there's the develop design of the game always shapes the content of the game. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that belief is a thing that I don't think is, I don't think it's terribly controversial or anything. I think it's just one of those internalizing it and teaching it to people so that you're like, Oh, cool. Okay. So if D and D is not your cup of tea, nothing wrong with that. Here are other options that mean you can still participate in the overarching hobby and have a great time and maybe come back to D and D eventually when you have pinned down. Oh, okay. Got it. This is the difference. This is what I'm playing D and D for, but it's kind of like just with video games, being able to say, I love RTSs versus I love grand strategy versus I love first person shooters. And they exist in different enough spaces that you can imagine a person occupying one of them and being interested in one of them and not the others, and that's fine. Or being interested in all of them, and that's awesome. And having that variety that supports just a broader community with lots of different interests and lots of different expectations and play aims, that to me sounds amazing to just build the diversity of the kinds of players and what they're interested in across all of role playing, because then it's only ever going to feed back into itself, right? Like yeah. hopefully yeah. our, our game leads to others learning lessons. Hopefully somebody else is, you know, we're going to draw lessons from their games. I, I will gladly say we shamelessly play tons of games that aren't ours and we uh, shamelessly learn from them and see what we can take and repurpose. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. And I mean, and honestly, that's one of the things we wanted to do here at Tavern Watch was make a space where we could start shouting out games like this and and Mm -hmm. make sure that we can use our platform to show other uh, people out there that there's, you know, there's a variety of of things available. And so Mm -hmm. like, if you look and and can find something that fits exactly what you're looking for, you don't necessarily have to be the the square peg trying to jam yourself into the round hole. And or you could just yeah. be me trying to get people to let me publish my article telling everyone to play masks back in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, I'm not kidding. That's what I did. A lot uh, of this stuff started from me going to Liz and saying, Hey, I got an off topic post I want to write. Can I do it? And she'd be like, Well, whatever, we got other things. And I would just sneak in and go, Okay, here's my sneaky thing. Boop. And so yeah. <laughs> but I think your point about it not having to be about, you know, you don't have to make a value judgment about these games. You don't have to say like this game's terrible um, because that also always ends up kind of creating hostility. That's Mm -hmm. not really useful. It's like the cola wars. Does it matter what beverage you drink? Just, (laughs) just have something to drink. It's fine. I really feel like that that's comes up a lot. One of the things I loved um, before your Kickstarter came along and, you know, completely annihilated the field was that games like coyote and crow were getting, uh, some love it was actually yep. doing okay on kickstarter and i'm i'm really like to see more marginalized groups get to work on games and and yes. put out the games yep. they want uh and again this is nothing against dnd i play a ton of dnd uh i've played mm-hmm. it for years um but i've also played like you know um i've got a copy of conspiracy x over here uh mm-hmm. if you remember that game i mean it's just it's it, there's room for these things and your point about design that's so important because it's, there are things D&D does really well, mm-hmm. um, but it is designed to do specific things. And it's not really designed for troop play, um, which is one of the mm-hmm. things I really loved about Masks when I started playing it was the, the, mm-hmm. the troop play that people's decisions would affect other people. And you'd, you'd yes and to them. You'd, you'd, you'd play off of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that is the thing you said about balance for, uh, for Avatar does seem to it leads me to the next question and then i want liz to ask one because i've been talking <laughs> over her for a while um you're doing the different eras of play mm-hmm. here where you can go back to 
like I I remember like some of them, but I remember like one of them is is the Avatar Kyoshi period. Yep. Um, the Law of States. I, obviously, one is just before the Hundred Years War, um, mm-hmm. and then obviously the Hundred Years War itself, and then the Age of Korra. Uh, what's the f- is the first one going all the way back to Avatar One, or am I forgetting that one? Like, what was the f- the first era of play? And secondly, why did you decide to do the eras of? Right now, we're going back as far as Kyoshi, um, and we. We geared it largely towards the avatars with uh, Avatar Kyoshi era, Roku era, Hundred Year War, Aang era, and Korra era. Um, and so the the one era is a thing that we know some people are going to totally go for. And it's a thing that we are thinking about, uh, but no specific plans as of yet for that. Okay, um, and only five is a lot, so it's not... Well, and not only that, exactly. it represents a large amount of variety, too, between just those different settings. And for those of you at home that are not necessarily maybe familiar with the Avatar setting, like, that's essentially going from, like, traditional uh, high fantasy to, like, a fantasy-slash-technological steampunk, like, and everything in between, right? Like, it's it's got a really wide gamut of of settings for you to kind of play in, which I think is really, really cool as well, because, again, not a lot of games do that. Yeah, each era, each era here has a really defined feel, so that's interesting. That's exactly the reason why we sort of aimed for these five uh, eras. Like Liz nailed it. the The fact that they are distinct in their tone, in the kinds of conflicts you're going to face, uh, it was part of that realization. Just between the two shows themselves, there are some wildly different issues that they are dealing with consequences of what happens in Aang's time are playing out in Korra's time, sure, but they're still playing out very differently, and it's very different than what we think of as Aang's core story, the struggle against the Fire Nation, the Fire Lord Ozai. Um, And then we have the uh, two Kyoshi novels, uh, which are just brilliant, and in turn bring out a whole new set of issues and conflicts and a whole new space to play in, so part of it was we knew we wanted to cover more than one time zone just because of the two core shows, if nothing else. Like, what if I want to play in Korra's time versus what if I want to play in Aang's time? Realizing that splitting it up by the avatars made a ton of sense uh, just because each avatar, you can't have two. <laughs> so that really chunked out the time pretty clearly. Um, and then realizing that each of them do speak to a clear set of issues where if we sp- split the Hundred Year War from Aang's era, we get to say the Hundred Year War is going to be classically almost Star Warsian with the Rebels versus the Empire, whereas Aang's era gets to be all about what happens after that, Uh, trying to resolve the remaining conflicts of the war, trying to bring the world back together after it had been shattered, uh, trying to repair some of that pain, and then Korra gets to play with the Industrial Revolution and technological advancement alongside some of that post-colonialist stuff um all of them get to create a different style of play with different issues which means you can choose both based on like i just like i just like the hundred year warrior it seems like fun and it's what i remember from the show or you could go oh you know what i really like the sound of international intrigue i like the sound of countries that are about to come to blows but there's Roku trying to hold it all together, desperately keeping the peace when international politics are becoming much more fraught. And it's it's a matter of time before something bad happens, which we all know it eventually does. Um, and the completely different feel of that, like, 
ooh, what's going on here is almost more spy-like than it is the straight-up open conflicts that would be in the Hundred Year War era. Or if you like, since you mentioned the Kyoshi novels, uh, the Kyoshi time period is one where you know Kyoshi herself didn't even think she should be Avatar. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she had, and she was very different. And you see that in in the shows as well. But she's a very different kind of Avatar, where mm-hmm. Aang comes to her for advice, and she's like, "I would kill them." But was killing us wrong? No, no. I've killed lots of people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I and you have a different setting there too. I did want to before. Yeah. Uh, I did want to actually ask you. You so you've ta- mentioned the novels. You, you've got the comic series as well, right? You, you you can use all that stuff as well, correct? Yeah, we are drawing on and referring to those events as well because they are canon. Uh, the Korra era is set after the end of the second set of Korra comics. Uh, the name is a, Ruins of Empire, I think. Mm-hmm. Is, I think that's it, yeah. So it's set after that. Liz, do you have any other questions about uh, the mechanics of the game before we go into the Kickstarter stuff? Uh, there was one mechanic uh, that I was interested in that seemed kind of unique was the small thing. One of the moves you have, kind of so many of these games, you know, the moves are focused on combat and action and doing things. And one of the moves here is called Comfort and Support, which is about just supporting other characters or offering some comfort and can change or remove statuses. And I was wondering kind of where, like it does seem core to the Avatar mythos that it's not just, you're not just fighting, you're working with people, you're developing relationships. Where where does this concept come in of doing more than combat and things like this comfort move? So at at a little bit of a level, this is one of those things I talked about before where like we mm-hmm. we have tools and we're pulling them over. And so comfort and support is a move in masks. And it was part of the question. Yeah, I, I didn't say that just so you get to ask your question and I didn't go nuts. <laughs> well, it, it, it is that that question, does it work in Avatar the same as it works in masks? Are they accomplishing the same goals? The actual nature of the move is a little different, and we're already still looking at that move, and that's one of the key places we're still focusing on for playtesting and for refinement of those moves. Um, the The idea here is twofold. One of them is we know the characters themselves, the main characters, they help each other out. They will go and find their friend who's sitting on the ledge and looking all sorrowful, and they'll talk to them and try to make them feel better. And those moments, if you don't have any mechanical component to them, you're going to have a brand of player who's totally happy to still do the thing. But you're going to have players who are like, I, I'm not going to do it, though, because I'm not prompted to. I don't have a clear reason to. It doesn't aim me in that direction. I'm not going to even think about it. It's not even that I'm refusing to. It's that it just doesn't occur to me. Um, whereas we definitely want... <laughs> people to be thinking about those moments. We definitely want these characters to have a bond and to connect and to try to reach out to each other and sometimes to have that go poorly and sometimes to have Toph say, I don't need you and have that cause more drama and tension. And then the second piece of it, though, is the understanding of how these main characters uh, relate to non-player characters or the supporting cast that they encounter as they travel because just as much as, say, Katara goes to comfort Aang or vice versa, they're also doing it for other people. They're also doing it for just the people they meet along the way who need their help. Um, and it became kind of a, a realization uh, uh, that our design goal here for this particular move, um, where obviously over time things can change and we're, we're going to continue to take a look at this. But 
the idea was that um, in a lot of other games, we have a move that's kind of a figure someone out or a read a person. In masks, uh, there's the uh, pierce the mask, and it's getting to ask the player of that character questions to get direct information that you can then act upon. Um, it's a way to say, I'm, I'm trying to empathize with you while I'm figuring out what's in your head. Um, and it's a useful move in a lot of games. But part of the decision here was, well, these characters actually don't seem to do that that often, or they're not very good at it. They <laughs> regularly are like misled or believe something about a character's motives that isn't true, or they have a hard time of doing the same, getting into somebody else's head without this empathetic comforting. So the comfort and support move became our way to also introduce the possibility for you to ask a question and get into somebody's head. The way that these PCs get to ask, like, what are you really after? What do you really want? What matters to you? Who are you really? Is by extending this comfort and kindness, by trying to help another person instead of trying to just spy on them or like crack open the facade that they're putting up and drink the marrow of their brain thoughts, uh, right? Like it's much more positive and it leads to a feel that's much more in line with the original source material of these characters being, even the ones who are jerks, a positive force for good in the world. Now, I think there was a question before we move on to the more of the uh, the mechanical stuff about uh Oh, wait, before you ask that one, before you ask that one, though, I have to say, <laughs> all that, that entire thing you just did made me think of Zuko going, that's rough, buddy. After Sokka told him that his girlfriend had turned into the moon. And like, that's rough, buddy. Uh, so. Also what I thought of at the same time. But, uh, Comforting and supporting can look different for every character. Very, yeah, very it's, true. It's, yeah, just, you know, that's rough, buddy. Uh, but Liz, why don't you go ahead and ask that, that question? Because I, uh, I think it's important. Yeah, I mean, kind of the... I, I did earlier say this was the most important question we could ask is, is there a playbook where I can play a flying bison? Because mm. I know that everyone's favorite <laughs> character in the series is Appa. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tragic for me to say, but unfortunately, <laughs> we have not yet released the flying bison playbook. Oh. <laughs> Sadly, as of yet. I will say... If you want to play the icon, which again, I refer to, I, I always hesitate a little bit when I say this because they're not perfect one-to-one. Uh, Aang can be a couple of playbooks maybe, and especially Aang over the course of a story changes playbooks. Same thing with Korra, same thing with all of them. So it's never, if you, I want to play Aang, therefore this is the only playbook. But the icon, the one that is kind of inspired by early Aang with this struggle between the role that is pressed upon you and your desire to just be you and be yeah. free includes a move that will let you take your own large animal that your group can travel the world upon uh, with suggestions, including uh, if I recall correctly, like a Komodo rhino, uh, one of those giant uh, rhinoceros beetles from the desert. Uh, obviously we include such classics as the flying bison and the polar bear dog. Yay. Um, so that is the way that you can get access to Appa, and then if you want Momo, um, we put a move to get your little companion. Uh, that's in the Bold playbook, um, because the Bold is also the Bolin playbook. Ah. Uh, so that had to have Pabu in it, right? Course, so yeah. that's it's the Momo-Pabu move. But 
you know, I, I'll go back to the team and I'll make a concerted <laughs> heroic effort to do the Flying Bison playbook. I'll I'll get on it. Uh, I mean, well, I mean, the first show is all about Appa. It's Appa true, and the kids true. that he's taking care of. It's true. <laughs> uh, so I think we, we're we're going to be coming up on time relatively shortly here, um, but I do want to spend some time talking about the actual Kickstarter itself. Uh, so we did talk about the, the already and mentioned that. It's been one of those things where you're at an ex- extreme level of success so far, as far as the, mon- the money level goes, but your stretch goals have been pretty phenomenal. Um, how have you been coming up with the stretch goals? Did you already have some in mind when you started this? How many more have you guys had to create on the fly or come up with or uh, versus how many that you had ready to go at the beginning of this? Yeah. Uh, so coming in, like based on all of the Kickstarters that we have done, we were very aware that one of the pitfalls you can have is this just pure excitement, this desire to give back to the backers, to honor how much they're supporting you and how much they're giving to the project and uh, come up with these great stretch goals without as strong a plan for how they're actually going to work. It's It can be a trap. And uh, it's a trap that we have fallen into on uh, past projects at some point or another. And we have learned that lesson and plenty of other Kickstarters have fallen into. So it's one of those hard won lessons of the cost of success almost. Mm-hmm. So coming coming in, like a lot of credit to uh, Marissa Kelly, who helped plan and design the Kickstarter, coming up with uh, a really deep plan for these stretch goals that would space them out and make sense. And they were things that we thought would be cool and interesting and could be excited about, but that would be manageable in the timeline that we were talking about, that we actually could accomplish and succeed at. Um, so we had that list. <laughs> and then the Kickstarter happened, and it was <laughs> a bit much. so successful. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a lot. And, you know, like, we ran through that list, not entirely, uh, not not every single thing, but a lot of it, faster than we had anticipated uh um, so they probably get all this done in a month yeah sure that's fine uh yeah, they already they already did all but two of them today that's yes yeah. that's the that's it that was it that was the conversation relatively early on <laughs> um and so that's um, obviously at some level incredible and amazing and at another level uh mildly panic inducing where we start needing to have these conversations and go back and figure out what are some of the other ideas we drawn out before and what can we continue to add on and build on and what else makes sense? Always checking in the whole time, doing our due diligence to make sure, um, is this a thing we actually can do? Is this a thing our printer can do? How long would it take? Uh, especially at the scale that we're talking about. How much is it going to cost? Uh, it is really important to do everything we can to try to make sure we're, we're adhering to the timeline as promised. If, like, for no other reason because we want the backers to be happy about it, but also there's, you know, CBS Viacom uh, mm-hmm, breathing mm-hmm, down our mm-hmm. necks. They, they've been, they've actually been great partners, but we are also just contractually obligated um, to do our part and make sure that we achieve a certain schedule. So what that translates to is a discussion about um, stretch goals that requires us to continue to go back to our partners at CBS Viacom and check things over, make sure these are approved, make sure they're okay. Um, when we go through that process, we're also still checking in on how could it actually work? What can we actually do? Who could we partner with that can maybe fill in this gap? Um, what would it cost? As I said, how long would it take? What would the actual thing uh, that we're going to make look like in the end? 
Um, so it has been a lot of work to continue to come up with these stretch goals that uh, continue to honor, again, that that massive support for which we're so grateful, um, while also simultaneously honoring the core of the thing, adding a stretch goal that's going to tank the project or massively extend deadlines or whatever, that's just not acceptable. So there's always that tension where maybe in our heart of hearts, there's so much we would have loved to promise, right? It's It's not as if I can't Think of right now another 10 playbooks that it would be awesome to be able to add on, but that's just not actually honoring the core project itself. So unfortunately, we're not going to do that. That doesn't mean we're never going to do that, but it means we're not going to do that right now for this project. Yeah, and I think, uh, so it, I, was gonna say, I think that's another thing that a, a lot of folks and, and I've had this conversation a lot over the last like week or so with various people. Um, just talking about like this type of stuff in general, uh, it's really easy to overpromise and underprovide, but it's also really easy to, you know, have a laundry list of things you want to do, but not be able to get to yet. But that yet is the kind of the key word, right? That doesn't mean that it's not something that could, couldn't happen in the future. And with something like as successful as this, you know, there, there's always that impetus to say, hey, look, we did this the first time, you know, maybe we can start making this other thing or doing this other thing and do other releases later on. Um, it kind of opens up that that doorway for a longer term approach to it. And I think a lot of people sort of have like this this mindset where it's almost like that it ends at the Kickstarter and that's not the case. Right. Like there's there's always the future of possible more development for other things to come later. Right. That's exactly the the real issue. And, and a big piece of that, too, I, I totally get it. At some level, if the Kickstarter isn't successful or if the game doesn't find life after the Kickstarter, that can feel like this fear that means you want to do everything early to make sure mm -hmm. the game is as supported and alive as it possibly can be up front. There's obviously that privilege and that advantage that thanks to just this enormous success of, of the backers and uh, thanks to all of them coming on board and thanks to seeing how much the game's being played, we can be a little bit more assured in the ability to come back later and do it. Um, but I think that the real thing is that understanding of there is a core to the game, there is a core product um, that we really want to nail. And if that's not strong enough or if that's not... Uh, that promise isn't adhered to, adding in additional stuff won't make up for that deficit. Mm -hmm. The core game still has to be able to rock. And so, you know, adding in 10 more playbooks, sure, it's a thing that we theoretically could do, but if that's going to take away resources we need to make that core book incredible, then that's just not worth it no matter what. There's no way to cut it. Yeah, and then um, and versus, versus exploring doing something like that later on when you can say maybe we do another exactly. release that has these 10 playbooks we do, right? Right, and and couple all of this with the fact that right now we still have an international uh, shipping uh, problem. Crisis, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Yeah, that's really hitting a lot of RPG companies. Yep, that it is having an effect on any of the options available to us on the timelines we can think about. Um, our current plans are such that we have accounted for it. And again, things should move forward, but we know there's always so much that's not in our control. Um, and what that means in turn is even with our best intentions, things may go awry. So that means let's not add in another thing that's going to quite possibly cause it to go awry in advance of those other things that we can't even control. Uh, okay. I have 
I have a question, another question about the Kickstarter. I think this is probably our last question. We're going to hit our time limit. Um, one of the stretch goals you have is a virtual, uh, an app, a companion app to go with the game for character creation and campaign management and things like that. When you started, was this even a pie in the sky kind of idea that you were thinking about? Because it's a little outside of the traditional kind of writing and developing an RPG uh, kind of skill set. Yeah, uh, well, as you know, the pandemic has affected everything. Um, It has obviously become way, way more important to have some way to support online role-playing. It was important before, and then it only just Mm -hmm. grew in prominence. Um, We promised an equivalent kind of thing for Root, the role-playing. We uh, we have put out uh, something for masks on uh, Roll20. We have some modules for Bluebeard's Bride for several of our other games. Um, So we have done the idea of sort of virtual uh, tabletop support several times over. Um, And we think that it is valuable. We we know that people play the game online a bunch, and we know that having the right tools makes a real difference. So for here, for this, this was absolutely a pie in the sky. Like, we we have it on the kinds of things we want to do, but we want to make sure that if we're doing it, we're going to be happy with it. It's going to be the kind of thing we would want to play and use. And obviously, it's not the space that we actually exist in. So really, we also want to make sure we have the right partner who's going to be able to come in and mm-hmm. uh, do a lot of that work. Cause it's not as if it's not as if in the next couple months, we're going to go ahead and learn exactly how to code, <laughs> right. And then create this perfect thing. We're, we're going to need help from experts uh, who know how to do this thing and who are able to set it up. So that is to say it was a combination of figuring out um, exactly what it would cost and what it would take and what that would look like on a business level, as well as figuring out who could do this and what could it actually look like such that we would be happy with it. It would support the game and backers would be happy with it. Uh, And obviously we're still figuring out the final details. We're still working on it to make sure we're committed to doing it, but we have one or two paths that we're looking into that we think are going to work out well. Um, But what it translates to in the end is just making sure that we can do it in some way that's not going to be, uh, a pit it's not going to be a trap um, of a thing that's people aren't going to want to use and it's never actually going to have the pickup that we want so it, as it has turned out it's like having this level of support does make it possible to do things at a level uh that we were not anticipating we're actually excited to be able to do wonderful thank you so much i think that's going to do it for time i'm going to do our outro here and then a little final thought uh, so Blizzard Watch and shows like Tavern Watch are made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your continued support means this podcast setting community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to our podcasts, better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Brendan, I want to thank you so, so very much for taking the time today and talking with us about basically everything. Uh, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you and what projects they should be looking for? Uh, basically, you know, show your stuff here. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Um, and most of everything I do, as I said, sort of at the top, uh, I work full-time with Magpie Games, um, so you can find out about everything we're doing uh, with our Twitter, at Magpie Official. You can check our website, www.magpiegames.com. Uh, obviously, Avatar is kind of the big thing, and that's going to be a little bit of a priority for the foreseeable future. 
but we always have new ideas and other things in the works. Um, so for me in particular, on the back burner is sort of an Irish fantasy Ooh. Game of Thronesian thing that I want to play with. So that's that's where I'm headed next. If uh, if you want to just make sure of the title at the moment, we're calling it Armored Society. So at some point, there will be more news about that coming down the pipe. Oh, wonderful. Uh, again, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to us. Uh, we will see you next time. love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.